Hello, church and friends visiting us today for our Sunday worship gathering. My name is Andrew, and I'm going to be preaching from God's Word today from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 10. The title of this sermon is The Love of Money. One of the most famous characters in the iconic book and movie series, The Lord of the Rings, is Gollum. If you've never heard of Gollum, he used to be a regular hobbit named Smeagol. A hobbit is an imaginary human-like being in the novels of J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, hobbits were uh, about the half, half the average height of a human being. They walked barefooted. They lived in underground homes. And the tragic story of Smeagol started when he found this magical ring that makes whoever wearing it disappear, invisible. And he loved this ring so much that he became obsessed with it. He ceased eating normally. He isolated himself from others. He was crazy paranoid that someone would steal it. He even murdered in order to keep possession of it. And his love, his lust for this ring, which he called his precious, twisted his mind and body so much that Smeagol turned into a different person, Gollum. Gollum lived miserably this way. And while Gollum thought that he was the owner of this ring, it was actually the ring that owned his soul. And this is a pointed illustration of what the love of money can do to a person as well. It can become our precious that twists our our minds and owns our souls. And this example is in line with Paul's serious warning about the love of money in our text of Scripture for today. If you've been following the last several weeks, there's actually been this undercurrent of talk about money. Paul talked about financially supporting deserving widows and elders, and then about slaves honoring and working for their masters. Now I'll read today's passage of scripture that explicitly teaches about how we view money. 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 through 10. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and cannot, we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is God's word. The one thing from 1 Timothy chapter 6 verses 11 through 16, this is Paul's message to the first century church and to us today as well. Surrender the love of money and seek contentment in Christ alone. I'm going to go I'm going to be teaching two main points that are from this passage of scripture. First, the snare of loving money, along with three truths related to this for us. And second, the secret to true contentment, along with two truths related 
to this for us. So let's pray one more time so we can ask the Lord to minister to us in this preaching moment. Heavenly Father, money is such a powerful tool that you have provided in our lives, but there is also also such a dangerous temptation to idolize it. May you speak to us so that we know that it is only you that can satisfy our heart's desires and to actually free us to truly live. Be glorified in our hearing and responding to your word today. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Now let's start with the first main point, the snare of loving money. There are three timeless truths regarding the snare of loving money from 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 through 10. Here's truth number one. There are many people out there motivated by conceit and unhealthy cravings. Paul went straight to the heart in verses 3 and 4 as he exposed the motivations of these false teachers who were negatively influencing the church in Ephesus. I want us to first observe that there are two kinds of of doctrines. There are the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. And then there is a different doctrine. There's the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the truth of the doctrines that are in the Bible, which leads to genuine change in life towards godliness. And then there's everything else that varies from this truth. Remember that Paul wrote this letter with the main purpose to address the issue of false teachers in the church of Ephesus, where Timothy was a pastor. He had already told Timothy to stop these heretics from teaching a different doctrine. He even identified two specifically by name who had made shipwreck of their faith. Paul wrote that it was inevitable that some would depart from their faith in Christ, influenced by this false teaching, but that Timothy was to remain a faithful servant of Christ by teaching and urging the truth. So Paul went on to say in verse 4 that these false teachers were puffed up with conceit. This phrase means to be inflated with excessive pride in oneself. And the irony of such such false teachers was that they were puffed up thinking that they knew But actually, they understood nothing, being ignorant and clueless. Along with conceitedness, Paul said, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. You know, Paul wasn't saying that, there shouldn't, that they shouldn't fight at all. There, there were definitely things worth fighting for. In fact, he exhorted Timothy to defend the truth against such false teaching. But the word craving here is the key difference. It meant to have an unhealthy or even morbid desire for something. And these false teachers had that kind of craving for controversies and quarrels about the nuances of words and and about theories uh, that were out there instead of things that really mattered. Being in the center of these controversies and quarrels fueled their narcissistic desire for attention. They craved it. But Paul taught that the bad fruit that was produced from these cravings were so destructive. Envy, disagreement that leads to discord, 
slander and constant friction between people who get suckered into these interactions. This is so interesting because this craving in human beings exists in the 21st century as well as in the 1st century. Social media is used today by people who crave controversies and quarrels. The more controversial, the more views and followers. The more views and followers, the more money to be made. And we get easily sucked into these things, don't we? Just think about the social media traffic that is out there about the British royal family right now. It just produces a lot of discord and slander and friction among us who are actually not even personally connected to this at all. The truth is, is that there are many people out there motivated by conceit and unhealthy cravings. Now here's truth number two. The true motivation of false teachers and the people who follow them is the desire to get rich. As we look at the second part of verse 5, we see the exact motivation of those who are leading people towards a different doctrine rather than the truth of the gospel and sound teaching of the Bible. The true motivation of these false teachers plaguing the Ephesians church was that they thought godliness was a means of gain. They were promoting these false teachings, legalistic ideas about forbidding marriage and abstaining from certain foods uh, as, as, that, as what godliness supposedly was. And they were also making a handsome profit out of it as well. Maybe it was their best-selling book, God Requires You to Be Single, Ten Steps to Being Right with God and Personally Fulfilled. Or maybe their multi-million subscriber YouTube channel about cooking the right foods to be delicious and to be right with God. Of course, I'm being facetious about the book or the YouTube channel, but the dangers of their teaching were very, very serious. They, were, they attracted those who were depraved in their mind and deprived in the truth of the truth, and they plunged them into even deeper and further lostness, even though they thought that they had discovered what they thought was the truth. You know, some things just don't change, whether it was 2,000 years ago or today. In light of Timothy's situation, I can think of a couple dangerous false teachings that are so attractive and gaining so much popularity today. First is the prosperity gospel, which says that that people with alleged right faith in God are not supposed to get sick anymore and are supposed to flourish financially. As one prosperity preacher once said, Nobody wants to die, nobody wants to be sick, nobody wants to be poor. And so the prosperity preacher, gospel preacher, takes advantage of this market by claiming that God will save you and make you healthy and wealthy too. And they make loads of money doing this. Second is the therapeutic gospel, which promotes the idea that God is a, is a person's therapist who exists merely to care for that person's felt needs of love, significance, self-esteem, self-confidence, pleasure, or excitement. And while there is a thread of truth in this false teaching, as most false, most, most false teachings do, there is an unbiblical focus on self without taking responsibility for personal sin 
and the deadly absence of Christ who brings salvation through repentance and faith in Him. The therapeutic gospel is also very widespread and sometimes difficult to detect. I'm afraid that many of us unwittingly take in or pass along therapeutic gospel ideas. For example, just look carefully at some some of the widespread sayings out there on Instagram or Twitter. Like, Like this, for example. Quote, Money cannot buy happiness, but it can buy blank that can provide happiness, unquote. When people take in a lot of this content, this kind of content, it only feeds this false teaching of therapeutic gospel. It, it, it satisfies a, a craving in, in people's hearts, but it's not the truth. Brothers and sisters in Christ, be careful of both of these kinds of false teaching. They are prevalent all over the world, including here where we are. And as a disclaimer, there is a difference between an unhealthy spirit of being suspicious, cynical, or judgmental, and a healthy spirit of discernment and wisdom in God's people. We do need the ability to discern the truth from the multitude of lies that are out there. This is the heart of something like parenting, isn't it? Parents cannot shelter their children from the evil in the world and in their own hearts. Instead, parents are to cultivate in their children the wisdom to discern right from wrong and also the courage to act uh, and make decisions by faith in God. And this is the same heart for discipling as well. How we disciple each other has that same heart where we are to cultivate in disciples of Jesus Christ the wisdom to discern truth from lies and also the courage to act and make decisions accordingly to their faith in God. And this is true maturity and true growth in a Christian. As the saying goes, the best way to identify um, A person uh, can identify counterfeit currency is not by studying all the counterfeits out there, but by studying and then knowing the real thing really, really well. Let's become great at studying, knowing, and understanding the Scriptures. Let's become great at living out the truth of the Scripture in our lives. This is true godliness. We have to be aware that the true motivation of false teachers and the people who follow them is the desire to get rich. And we we have to reject these as lies because we know the truth of God as well. Here's truth number three now. The love of money is a dangerous sin that leads people to wander from Christ. If the first two truths were regarding false teachers out there, this third principle is really regarding all of us in our hearts. Also, this is why I'm speaking out so strongly against all of this, because just like Paul in this scripture, he is being very, very uh, serious and somber. Paul wrote this truth in verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. 
the apostle explained that those who are motivate, motivated by the desire to be rich are actually setting themselves up to be caught in a snare, in a trap that will send people down this path of ruin and destruction. Let me explain what I mean. I know that most of us are familiar with the classic spring-loaded bar mousetrap. A little while ago, we had a rat that was visiting our house, and so my wife asked me to take care of it. And so after mustering up all the courage that I had to tackle this problem, I went to Hypermart to find some mouse traps, but all I could find were these glue traps. And the glue tra these glue traps are really evil genius. It's genius in its simplicity. You just put some bait in the middle of this sheet that is coated with industry-grade uh, sticky material, and the rat gets stuck on it. And it's evil in its method of death. Instead of a quick strike to the rat's spinal cord from a, like a traditional mouse trap, the rat on a glue trap is just stuck and dies slowly from exhaustion, exposure, and starvation, especially if it's left on that glue trap for a long time. It's actually so evil that it's banned from countries like New Zealand. And to the rat, it looks so yummy. But the truth is, it is a deadly trap. Paul says that this is the kind of snare that is the desire to be rich. It looks so appealing and attractive from our limited perspective, but it is in truth a slow, gradual path to ruin and destruction. Then Paul wrote in verse 10 that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Notice that he didn't say that money is the root of all evil. Money is amoral, that is, neither good or evil in and of itself. Notice that he also didn't say that it's only for rich people. It is a snare for us all along the spectrum of rich and poor. At the very heart of it is where we put our faith. Do I trust in God to take care of all that I need and want in my life? Or do I trust in money to take care of all that I need and want in my life? Now in verse 10, there's that word craving again. This craving, that the love of money, has led to all sorts of problems and have destroyed so many families, friendships, businesses, and churches in our lifetimes. And worse yet, and I cannot overemphasize this, it has caused people to wander away from their faith and pierced themselves with many pains. People are even willing to exchange the gift of God's salvation, the wonderful gift of God's salvation, for the prospect of getting rich. This is the saddest part, isn't it? People who love money can actually forfeit the promise of eternal glory with God. And then it actually leads them to the sharpest of pains, emptiness, anxiety, conflict. May this be a sober warning for us. Money is needed to function in life, but money does not make life. In fact, the love of money is a very real threat 
to take away life from us. Just imagine with me the typical story of a hypothetical person named Clarence. I tried to pick a very uncommon name. Clarence was a young Christian who started out with a sincere desire to honor God in his career and to take care of his family. After some initial struggles, he finally got his taste of success, and this helped him to upgrade his lifestyle. As the years went on, Clarence worked more and more to pay for his ever-increasing lifestyle and, to be honest, because he enjoyed the feeling of seeing his net worth increase. But also this meant that he was often fighting with his wife because of promises broken over and over again and neglecting his children. Clarence missed birthdays, anniversaries, holidays, and other significant family events. And even when he was present, he was often preoccupied with his business. He rarely attended life, a small group at church because of work and side jobs that took up most of his free time. Sunday mornings, he was usually so tired and, and distracted by the new toys that he'd bought that he really didn't pay much attention to sermons. He didn't invest in any deeper relationships that that would challenge him, and this left him isolated and with no one to speak into his life regarding his growing distance with his wife and kids. Now, this may not describe us all, but we can all understand how this happens, can't we? You see, the love of money is a dangerous sin that leads people to wander from Christ. As Jesus wisely once said in Matthew 16, 26, what good will it be if someone, for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? So this is the snare of loving money. And I hope it's clear that we need to surrender the love of money. But how? We're going to see this in the second main point of today's sermon. The secret of true contentment. There are two timeless truths regarding the secret of true contentment from 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 10. Here's truth number four. Godliness includes faithfully stewarding money during our lives because we can't take it with us. Paul spent a lot of time warning the Ephesian church about this dangerous snare, which is the love of money in verses 3 through 5 and then again in verses 9 and 10. In between those two sets of warnings, he inserted the goal to be aiming for as Christians when he wrote in verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Let's break this down to understand it a bit better. Paul said that it was what was truly profitable, and if you notice, Paul is using some irony here as he says, what is true profit or true value is actually not in money, but found in godliness with contentment. Remember, Paul has been using the word godliness throughout his letter in describing when faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the sound doctrines of the Bible are synchronized with a person's real-life actions, decisions, attitudes, and relationships. He says this kind of godliness is part of what is great gain. Along with godliness, the other key part of what is great gain is the idea of contentment. Contentment here means the state of being satisfied and sufficient with one's lot in life. And so it's great gain for for people to synchronize faith 
with real life and to be satisfied with the situations that they were currently living in. Then in verse 7, Paul explained the reasoning behind why this is a good, solid goal. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. When a person is born, he is naked and frail. He has no bank account and has zero net worth. When a person dies, he cannot take his money, clothes, or any other treasured possessions with him. Those things remain on earth. There is a a very famous play with a title that says it all. You can't take it with you. And the reason why godliness with contentment is great gain is because what we have on earth is temporary. All of it is only under our care during our lifetimes and no more. And there are other things in life that are a higher priority to pursue. Things that have eternal ramifications. This is the biblical doctrine of stewardship, which is the idea that everything in this universe belongs to God and, is, and He has entrusted, to, uh, entrusted us to use His resources for His glory. Stewardship encompasses a lot. Our money, time, energy, skills and abilities, even relationships, like parenting, is a stewardship. But I'm going to focus on the stewardship of our finances here. In our lifetimes, God has called us to steward our money as a means to provide a living for ourselves, for our families, and for others, as well as to use strategically towards matters regarding God's kingdom, like tithing to the local church, supporting justice and mercy ministry, and missions work. Stewardship of our finances is a very tangible way to to build godliness, because it really is synchronizing our faith with this very specific area of our lives and to examine, evaluate our hearts. Am I really content? Can I recommend a a great but kind of scary exercise to evaluate our godliness and contentment regarding money? Do an experiment by tracking all of your expenses for the next two weeks, starting tomorrow on March 22nd until all the way till Easter, April 4th, that's two weeks. Make or find online an outflow worksheet, depending on perhaps how tech-savvy you are, uh, which will be for you to be tracking all of your spending for the next two weeks. And after those two weeks, you can evaluate. How did, how did you spend your money? What do your expenses say about what you value? How would you describe the condition of your heart? Content or covetous? Trusting or worried? Generous or selfish? Conscientious or careless? I found personally the book Managing God's Money by Randy Alcorn foundational for me in understanding and practicing biblical financial stewardship. I recommend that book if you want to get deeper into this topic. And may the Lord teach us that godliness includes faithfully stewarding money during our lives because we can't take it with us. Here is truth number five now. Contentment can be found in seeking first God's kingdom and His righteousness. Paul said in verse 8, But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. In verse 8, 
echoes Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 6 when he said that no one can serve both God and money. He will despise one and be devoted to the other. Then the Lord taught his disciples that they shouldn't be anxious about what they will eat or drink or what they will wear. Instead, what they were supposed to do is they were to trust that their Heavenly Father knows exactly what they need and will take care of those exact needs for them. And then Jesus said this, Matthew 6, verse 33, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The path of discipleship starts when the rule and reign of Jesus Christ takes over the human heart. The Spirit of God invades our spiritually dead and idolatrous hearts and gives it new life by God's grace to now receive by faith the gospel that is the good news that our Lord and Savior Jesus died on the cross as our substitute sacrifice, paying the penalty for our sins and crediting to us His perfect righteousness, thus making us reconciled with God. And then the path of discipleship continues now throughout our lives as we seek first Christ's rule and reign in our hearts and lives every day. This is true godliness that Paul is talking about. Therefore, godliness with contentment Contentment is a process that happens as we follow Jesus. This pertains to all areas of life, but namely here regarding to our heart attitudes towards money and to how we steward our money. It is a process of constant repentance as the Spirit of God convicts us of our sinful hearts and actions and then changes us through the Spirit's sanctifying work. Disciples of Christ progressively grow more and more content in Him, because knowing Him and serving Him in life is truly the best thing. The other things are good, but even if disciples don't have those things, they will still be content because they have Jesus. You know, I can think of a couple tests that God can use to help us see our attitudes towards money and how we steward it. First, God can take away a significant part of our money, and this test is God imposed. For example, there was a time that I lost my job, used up all my savings, and finally had to get help from the government. I had to get unemployment checks from the government. And this was so humiliating for me. But it exposed my self-sufficiency and my pride in thinking that I could take care of myself. Second, another way, another test is by being intentional about living sacrificially, by things like tithing regularly to the church, giving to others who are in need, or setting limits on spending into your lifestyle. These are self-imposed disciplines to keep our hearts in check. For example, Nikki and I think through how much we will commit to tithing um, when we make our yearly budget, and we try to stick with, we stick with that for the entire year. I can definitely testify 
that it is, this has been an area of my life that Jesus has discipled me faithfully through the 31 years of following him. It continues now as well as I continue to follow him by God's grace. I have to confess that sometimes I fantasize about what it would be like to have so much money that I could just buy whatever I wanted. And that's a real sin issue in my heart. But God is refining my heart by His grace to be content with what He has provided for me. And by the grace of God, He keeps helping me to surrender loving money by seeing the folly and seeing the uselessness of having riches that I fantasize about, making me truly happy and satisfied with, the finan- with my financial lot in life right now. He keeps me accountable. He keeps me in check through different relationships and systems that we have in our lives. And he gives me a greater purpose and meaning for my life in God's kingdom that money just cannot buy. And so this prayer has been our, this proverb has been our prayer, Nikki's and mine, since we've been married. And I want to just share it with you. Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. May we heed this as a warning, but also as a vision from the scriptures as the Lord disciples us to follow Jesus. Father, teach us that contentment can be found in seeking First, God's kingdom and his righteousness. This is the secret of true contentment. And in light of these benefits, we can surrender the love of money because we know and trust that we can seek, seek contentment in Christ alone. And so now let's move on to the next steps that we take in light of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3-10. through 10. As we surrender the love of money and seek contentment in Christ alone, here are two specific life application points. First, examine your own motivations and behaviors regarding money. What needs to be confessed and surrendered to, to Christ Jesus? You can be honest with God today. What is the Spirit of God speaking to you about regarding your motivations and behaviors regarding money, content or covetous, trusting or worried, generous or selfish, conscientious or careless. Try to do this heart inventory and also try to track your expenses for the next two weeks. This will take some intentionality and some diligence. As disciples of Jesus Christ, however, we seek first his rule and reign in our lives. And so we're willing to go through those exercises. His, we seek His righteousness that shines like light into our hearts and into our lives. Second, grow in your intimacy with Christ personally and with others. How can we disciple each other towards contentment in Christ alone? I hope that this is crystal clear from this sermon, that Jesus Christ is the best master to serve. The love of money is a cruel, deceptive master that leads to ruin and destruction. The only antidote for our hearts is the truth that although our Lord Jesus was rich, he became poor for our sake. And through his poverty, we are truly made rich in Christ. He's all that we need. 
This is the gospel that we need to keep preaching into our hearts. And in our discipleship, this journey of following Jesus, let's allow His words to reverberate in our hearts and minds. Let's do a special Bible study or reading plan by ourselves or with another brother or sister in Christ. Let's have solid, open, vulnerable conversations. Let's keep each other accountable. Let's train one another. I'm talking about spouses and and friends and fellow life group members to be godly in the area of finances. Let's go back now to our live Sunday celebration so that we can respond to God's word together. God bless you.